Hey, Jeremy, what thoughts, however colorful, do you have about psychedelics? Ooh, like mushrooms? Yeah. Uh, I think that they are all the rage in terms of both medical and non-medical uses. Uh, I can honestly say I've never used one. Yeah, so me neither. I don't know. I would I would admit to it too, but I haven't. It's, I don't know. It scares the crap out I of me. I probably would too, but I probably would admit. To it. Although I don't know if I would admit to it, and I don't <laughs> have to because I haven't tried it. But uh, I yeah, it does scare the crap out of me. I don't. I, I someone would have to hold my hand. <laughs> right. Well, does your mind? But I would love to know where this is going. Yeah. Does your mind wander to late '60s Beatles tunes? Yeah, except for the fact that obviously, like, all the news has been talking about psychedelics with, like, PTSD, right. and I'm a doctor, so. Yeah, exactly. You're looking uh, through that lens. But yes, prior to that, yes, yeah. I it makes me think of long hair and jam bands and yes. Volkswagen buses. <laughs> you, you touched on this, but yeah, have you heard about their therapeutic uses in medicine? Just for post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Yeah, I think to some folks, it would seem like hippy-dippy fringe medicine stuff. Can you guess which academic and research institution has the most robust psychedelic research department in the United States? If it's for hippy-dippy things? Berkeley. No. That's a good good, uh, guess, though. It's the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. It is the most robust. It's very interesting. I have heard that the Johns do like psychedelics. <laughs> That's good. Like uh, like John um, Lennon. Yeah, right. Uh, I came across a press release article in my inbox outlining key points from a recent, it was just uh, on November 16th of this year. Um, it was a Johns Hopkins congressional briefing, and it was titled, What's Next for Psychedelics? I'll tell you, the future looks promising. Um, The article centers on the potential cost-saving benefits of utilization of psychedelics in the treatment of a variety of conditions, including addiction, depression, including that associated with Alzheimer's disease, anorexia, OCD, um, PTSD, post-treatment Lyme disease disorder. So with all this, Jeremy, well, one, what do you think about that? I mean, it... it I'm intrigued. Yeah. I would like to know more about treatments. It also makes me think of Pandora's box. Yeah. It just makes me think of like with the death of expertise, like if this gets approved and then it has to be prescribed and then later down the road, people being like, my prescriber doesn't know when I need my psychedelics and not. And it just leads to that whole conversation <laughs> yeah. of like, uh, uh, I, I don't want to prescribe your psychedelics because you don't need psychedelics for your knee osteoarthritis. Agreed. Agreed. I think, yeah, the Pandora's, bo- Pandora's box makes a lot of, that argument does hold some water to me. But yeah. So are you ready to break on through to the other side of our intro? I see what you did there. With me and talk about medicinal psychedelics? Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. Well, lots about this topic interests me, and I'm going to make it interest you. So you ready to dive in? Yes, I am. So there's really kind of a brief article that I came across in my email that really seemed to highlight the cost-saving aspects of utilization of psychedelics, which I found interesting, and I feel like this happens a lot. So for example, the title was, quote, psychedelics have potential to be transformative in saving healthcare system millions. 
Do you feel like that you see this tactic used in healthcare discussion and research, like focusing on the dollars and cents? Yes. Rather than live save or therapeutic impact. What why do you think why do you think we do this? Um, it's because the people who approve this stuff and where you have to get your funding from and grants and all that stuff, all they care about is the money. Yeah. Agreed. Not necessarily making it either. I don't mean to make it be like all they care about is making money. They also care how much they're going to be spending. Yeah. Um, so that's why. Yeah, I think so. It's interesting that that's the title of it, though. It's like, guess what? This is going to save money. And in my mind, that almost turns me off a little bit. It's more like, I want to know how it's going to make people better. And the point is, yeah, you can do both I mean, it's at the coming same at time. it from a different angle, yeah. though, right? Because like, I feel like there's a lot of headlines that say this previously, like, banned substance can save everything and you're like oh, okay another banned substance that's being right like revolutionized for medicine and like yeah it can cure everything and whatnot and so you know a different type of headline that says huh interesting they've done this on a cost-effective analysis like i wonder what that's all about yeah so i could i could see the value there yeah definitely well the article highlights key points this was from a 43 minute panel discussion that you can we'll link in the show notes as a youtube video you can watch um at johns hopkins which featured three experts one was fred barnett he's a phd he's the director in this uh of the center of psychedelic and consciousness research um also dr sandeep nayak he's an md he's a medical director of the same center and also matt eisenberg who's a phd and a professor at the bloomberg school of public health and also the director of the Center of Mental Health and Addiction Policy at Johns Hopkins. So I think that's probably where the cost-effectiveness side came in was um, was Dr. Eisenberg, who was kind of the the public health kind of um, lens through which this was discussed. Um, so yeah, it was interesting to see these three different facets of expertise, a PhD in research, an MD, and a public health impact too. So perhaps that's where this article got its title. Um, They posited that psilocybin and other psychedelics may represent a radical shift in the healthcare paradigm due to the lower costs of these substances. Mm. So that's kind of where this is going. And it didn't really go into specifics about this much money will be saved, but the idea was this could save millions or billions. Um, And I think there, I I don't think that that's a, a platform upon which this has been this subject has been talked about very much. That's probably why they took this angle. In my yeah. Mind. So the hypothesis is because this is readily available and not that expensive, right. we could save a lot of money. Yeah. It, until it gets you know synthetically made right. because it has to be medical grade, and then somebody puts a name on it that's yeah. not psilocybin, but like psilocybin health, yeah. and all of a sudden it's a million dollars. Right. Exactly. During the briefing, uh, Dr. Eisenberg, he's the public health guy. Um, said that, quote, one in five adults in the United States have a mental illness and one in 25 have a serious mental illness. And there's an enormous treatment gap. The current standard of care for treatment involving long term use of medications, as well as cognitive therapy, these are quite costly. And the standard is to stay on them for a very long time. So that was sort of his background as to why uh, less costly uh, alternatives are worth looking into. He goes on to say, the efficacy of psychedelics in clinical trials demonstrated shorter treatment cycles, um, along with the potential to save the healthcare system millions or billions of dollars through reduced medication costs, decreasing need for inpatient care, and less reliance on long-term disability benefits, end quote. So that was sort of what the public health guru no, I wouldn't say guru. That's a dumb word. Well, we are talking about psychedelics. I feel like guru goes in there. But <laughs> the public health expert at Johns Hopkins was saying, and I, I think that holds water. Jeremy, can you think of 
potential obstacles or roadblocks in the utilization of psychedelics in clinical research and treatment? Just like you as a research-minded person, what would you think of dosing in the sense that, first off, these are not, these are illegal drugs, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. So like psilocybin remains listed as a DEA schedule one drug. So, well, first off, would you like me to do a brief primer on psilocybin? Just to give you some information about it. Uh, Psilocybin is a naturally occurring psychedelic compound or prodrug that comes from over 200 species of fungi, not the scary ones that turn ants into zombies that we talked about on our Halloween episode, but but other ones. Um, Psilocybin is generally a serotonin agonist. Um, and serotonin is, you know, one of your feel good, uh, neurotransmitters in your brain. That's what a lot of like antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications work on as well. But there are specific receptors upon which psilocybin upregulates in, um, in the serotonin world. Um, pharmacokinetically, and I thought this was really interesting. It works as a psychoplastogen, which means that it can create rapid and sometimes sustained or permanent effects on neurons so nerve structure and function so other types of um other other substances that fall into the group of psycho psychoplastogens involve ketamine scopolamine lsd and mdma or ecstasy these are all psychoplastogens and they've all been studied for their uses in treating things like ptsd neuropsychiatric disorders eating disorders depression anxiety addiction cluster headaches kind of hard to treat things um, psilocybin has been a subject of clinical research th- since the early 1960s, <laughs> as we could all have all guessed, um, when the Harvard Psilocybin Project evaluated the potential use of it as a treatment for certain personality disorders. Um, and then in beginning in the 2000, the psilocybin has been investigated for its possible role in the treatment of a lot of things. Um, and we'll go into this. And this is sort of where the Johns Hopkins Center began. It was in the early 2000s for nicotine dependence, alcohol dependence, OCD, cluster headaches, cancer-related existential distress, um, anxiety disorders, and other mood disorders. So in 2018, the United States FDA granted breakthrough therapy designation um, so it's a very specific ability to use psilocybin, even though it's a banned substance or, or yeah, an illegal substance. Um, in its use, uh, psilocybin-assisted therapy for treatment-resisted depression. So people that had recalcitrant, very difficult-to-treat depression, that they had failed a lot of other treatments. So they were saying, yes, you can try to use this psilocybin-assisted therapy. Um, A systematic review published in 2021 found that the use of psilocybin as a pharmaceutical substance was associated with reduced intensity of depression symptoms. So there's data to support this. So, yeah, its classification as a Schedule One drug puts up a lot of roadblocks to its use clinically. Um, And then Dr. Nyack, who was the MD part of this panel discussion at Johns Hopkins, states in the article that approval for clinical and research use of psilocybin and other psychedelics is available if you're willing or able to prove legitimate scientific reasons to investigate. So you kind of have to. So when they did this study, how did they give it to them? They give them mushrooms just to eat or like this was in pill form or like, how do you get psilocybin dosable? Right. Um, Can you put it in a capsule? It's not just one 
clinical trial we're talking about. I'm like the the article is making reference to this basically this big panel discussion about the futures of its use. And it was I get that. You talked about the the study that yes, they yes, talked yes. about yeah. to like they were allowed to use it for depression. Correct. Yeah. Type so of thing. generally these clinical trials involving psychedelics, particularly psilocybin, involve the subject taking a prescribed amount of the drug and then engaging in psychotherapy and psycho like um, therapy support while under the effects of the drug. So it's like purified in a capsule type form. Right. And, and it, then and regularly dosed. Yeah. And it's not like, from what I saw, it's not like you, you would take it the same way you would take an antidepressant medication, like like Zoloft. You wouldn't like take your everyday um, psilocybin and go live your life. It was take this medication and then we're going to do this very specific therapy sure. related treatment for you. Um, and what's interesting is what they're, what this panel was talking about was you may not have to do that very many times before you're going to see huge improvements in people's whatever you're treating. And in this case, you know, it was treatment-resistant depression. It's not like you have to keep doing this forever. It, it You could do it a handful of times and then have a long-lasting improvement um, for which you wouldn't necessarily need a lot more treatment or any treatment at all. So very yeah, interesting. Yeah, my understanding of the data from like even PTSD, and I think what you're referencing here was that many of the things that the people experiencing these conditions needed to work through with both therapy right. and exposure were too difficult to even access. Yeah. And therefore they were able to then use psilocybin to put them in a state in which they could access those memories or access those deep, awful experiences and then thus potentially work past them. Yeah. Agreed. Was at least my understanding of what was going I agree com completely. I, I wanted to make reference to you were talking about kind of opening Pandora's box before about like, okay, well, once you, there's just going to be a lot of caveats to how you can utilize these medications. And that's why there are these highly regulated processes for substances that have high potentials for abuse, right? Um, we, we do things similarly for people taking stimulants to treat ADHD or, you know, even now for medical marijuana, that kind of stuff. So these highly regulated processes mean that the period of acceptance of, of like a study's subject matter and the trial commencement can take a really long time when you're trying to like do these psilocybin studies. Um, and then you're right, having to pay very particular attention to safeguards against misuse of these substances, of these psychedelic substances. So what's interesting I found is the FDA released a draft statement in June of this year of 2023 with actual guidance on how to use psychedelic substances in clinical investigations. And there's a, you know, 13 something, 15 page, um, and I could link to it in the show notes as well, uh, document that says this is how you should do it and why. And here's the the reasoning why we say that. Um, and again, that again, it'll go basically generally the clinical trials involve taking the medication and then doing therapy in, in these sort of like instances, right? Um, but what, one thing that was interesting that I found in these FDA draft guidelines was that doing it in this way, meaning you take the drug and then you have this therapeutic um, exercise that you do with a healthcare provider, they said, quote, this additional variable of putting the medication with this therapy both complicates the assessment of the effectiveness and presents a potential challenge for any future product labeling. So you're right. 
if it's only okay to do it in this way of like, you take drug and then you do this very specific type of therapy, then how do we go to, do you just take drug? Do you never take drug? Do you only take drug and do it this way? And what what was the thing that actually made you better? Or was it the combination of the two things, you know? Well, I would hope in the study that you would have them doing the, you know, like a control yes. group doing the intervention Correct. with the therapy that doesn't involve the drug. Yes. I think, to me, that sounds great mm-hmm. if the only way that that drug was being prescribed is if you went into a controlled environment, took the drug, and did a treatment along with it, and then left, and then the drug didn't go with you at all. Like, right. you wouldn't have to worry about misuse. It was being dispensed at the place it Correct. was associated with the treatment. Because the thing that always bothered me about medical marijuana was not marijuana at all or THC at all, Mm -hmm. but was I didn't want to put the time and effort into having to figure out who actually needed it versus who was just coming in and asking me for like a a prescription for it. And once word got out, at least initially, that you were somebody who was willing to prescribe it, it, next thing you know, all 20 patients on your schedule are looking for, you know, THC prescriptions. And it's just not why you went into the field. So I am fully beyond behind using these in appropriate ways mm-hmm. but that would burn me out yeah. personally is having to decide who who's legitimate and who's not yeah and i think anecdotally just as an aside uh, as it relates to being someone that being a, a, a clinician who is willing to sign off on someone's um medical cannabis use um i've done it a few times it doesn't bother me at all Mainly because really all you're getting legally is a tax break. You know what I mean? Like these things are th- what the patient is getting. Understood. Yeah. So like there's really like low stakes to me. It's like, well, I'm just like saving them well, some money point, and they can get but it. When this first came out, Correct. it was not, you, you couldn't go down to the corner yes. and buy it in a nice place. Yes. And that was what, that's when I was referencing. Uh, agreed. I understand what you're saying now. Yeah. And most of the time when somebody in the office says, you know, should I try THC for this, you know, yeah. pain I'm having? I usually sure. say, that's yeah, an interesting thought. I think you should, you know, I, I I can't tell you I'm completely up to date on the research on it. Sure. So I don't know if I should be your, you know, your perfect reference mm-hmm. for that. But I certainly don't think it's unreasonable to try it. And then in terms of they're like, can you give me THC? I'm usually like, well, I think that's something that you should either discuss with your primary care because I don't know other medications you're taking or any yeah. conflicts. And then sure. ultimately this is just like an over-the-counter drug. Yeah. Like you can go buy the over-the-counter drug and try it. As opposed to like if you were going to prescribe a stimulant for someone who has ADHD, right? Now you feel like now you're in charge of that and it's something that you're managing forever and you and and it's so and the regulations around it are so stringent. Like for example, if I was going to write um uh a, a medical cannabis use authorization, that's good for like 3 years. And mm-hmm. I can just like sign some stuff online and then goodbye. Now this person gets a te- like doesn't have to pay taxes on it. Whereas sure. if I am am signing up to give somebody their their Adderall. Adderall, I have to write a prescription for them every thirty days for as long as they're my patient and make sure yeah. that you know that you're tracking that they're not you know using more than it is prescribed and blah blah blah. Like it's a it's more of a pain in the ass. And so I think that that gets yeah. in the way sometimes of people getting it's a barrier to treatment for people that might need it, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think you're talking about two doctors who don't regularly treat ADHD. So I think if I was somebody who was a psychiatrist and was regularly treating ADHD and felt I was an expert in it and understood the research and the medications Mm -hmm. and what I should prescribe, and somebody came out with research that said THC actually helps ADHD and I understood the dosing and that sort of thing, like it'd probably be something to look into. I think most of the time people bring it up to us, it's for pain, right? Because we're treating orthopedic conditions 
And again, I just don't have enough knowledge on the data to tell you kind of like what dosing and sure. how often. And I don't even know if we have that data, to be honest. Yeah. I don't think it really exists. And so, again, I don't think it's unreasonable to consider it. But that that Pandora's box yeah. that I just like, as the prescriber, like, I want you to understand that I believe that there's efficacy here. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to think that I'm like not in on this at all. But I also don't feel comfortable just being like, yep, here's a prescription, here's a prescription, here's a prescription, right. here's a prescription, because I don't know if we have enough information at this point to be like, you take two milligrams and do it when you're feeling pain yeah. and don't consume it while you're driving and right. all these other things that like go into it that we do with these other medications. Agreed. Yeah. And and Dr. Barrett, who is the PhD researcher at the Johns Hopkins Center, he cited the example of ketamine you know, of which the scientific community possesses a lot more knowledge compared to yes. psilocybin. And it's it's classified as a Schedule II drug by the DEA, so it's easier to utilize. Um, but despite its lack of potency compared with ketamine, psilocybin still remains a Schedule I substance. Um, yeah. Well, and so maybe the point is that that's not where it should be, right? right? Maybe psilocybin should be making its way the same way with marijuana was Agreed. before, right? I mean, like, like maybe these schedules are not, are, are the problem and we should be de- I mean, ketamine has a lot of great uses, but also I don't think people should be just at home just taking ketamine suckers, yeah, right? Exactly. Like that's probably not good for you either. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Dr. Barrett was basically saying we just need more study on things like psilocybin so that we can become more comfortable with it like we are even with ketamine um, in the psychiatry world and in the world of um, treating really difficult to treat disorders. So... Um, Another big roadblock in the use of psychedelics in clinical medicine lies in the adequate training of healthcare practitioners in its utilization. Kind of exactly what you're talking about, Jeremy. It's mm -hmm. like, I want to feel empowered as, as the prescriber to know that I'm doing it right for you, that I'm doing right by you as my patient. So in 2022, a $900,000 grant from the psychedelics-focused Hefter Research Institute was awarded to researchers at Johns Hopkins, Yale, and New York University to build out a postdoctoral fellowship and gold standard training program in psychedelic therapy. So that, Great. within the last year, is in the works of, of being created. Um, and then I would love to talk a little bit more about the specific, uh, the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research that is at Johns Hopkins. So it began in the year 2000 um, by a physician, an MD named Roland Griffiths. Uh, he was a Johns Hopkins psychiatrist and neuroscience professor, um, who received FDA approval to begin studying psilocybin at Hopkins, so in the year 2000. And then over the decades that followed, Dr. Griffiths has created protocols for using the hallucinogenic drugs in clinical settings and has led dozens and dozens of studies showing the safety and, and efficacy of psilocybin. Um, so the actual, like, as it's, as it's now named, the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research opened at Hopkins in 2019 with Dr. Griffiths at the helm. There's now more than 40 researchers who work at the center on studies looking at the effects of psilocybin on anorexia, smoking, major depressive diseases, Alzheimer's disease, and a lot of other conditions. If you go on their website, you can you could sign up for a study if you wanted to based on different criteria. There's there's many ongoing right now, and then there's links to a lot of the research that already exists. And I won't go into all of it because there's a lot. Um, and I think it's legitimate and well done. Um, so... On the Hopkins site for the Center of Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, they linked to a New York Times article from April of 2023. It was titled, quote, A Psychedelics Pioneer Takes the Ultimate Trip. And it highlighted Dr. Griffiths and his own personal journey. 
And in the article, he recalls the first psychedelic therapeutic study at Hopkins that involved cancer patients. And it was utilizing the drug to combat the depression and anxiety related to their diagnoses. Later studies then focus on the use of psychedelics in cancer-related existential distress and the field of psycho-oncology. So that's what it sounds like, is helping people that have cancer diagnoses manage their, you know, cognitive and emotional distress that's related to that, right? Um, Dr. Griffith supports the medicalization of psychedelics, utilizing established regulatory guidelines and sort of fleshing out the specifics of who should receive and administer the treatment and for which specific conditions. So this has been like his life's work. Mm -hmm. And then in a poetic turn of irony, the New York Times article interviews Dr. Griffiths, uh, focusing on his recent diagnosis of stage four metastatic colorectal cancer. Uh, This article was in April 2023. And it opens with the interviewer asking Dr. Griffiths, quote, can we start with your current prognosis? With the response from Dr. Griffiths laughing, prognosis is a 50% chance that I'll make it to Halloween. And Dr. Griffiths died on October 16th, which was information that I that I received when the research of this article, which I just thought was really interesting and poetic. And um, his the end of his research and the beginning and the end of it kind of talked about um, cancer patients and and helping them relate to the existential crisis that they go to, go through um that really we all go through and i just thought that was a really beautiful poetic ending to a bit of this story i love the title of that mm-hmm. article mm-hmm. i am always up for a good pun yeah thank you for that wonderful pun yeah and i think that that quote about what he is open to is perfect yeah the analogy that i was thinking about was kind of like um the ivermectin and COVID situation. Mm. And and the reason I bring that up is um, because what I think is the big difference is the science makes sense here, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, You mentioned the definition and that it's a serotonin agonist and the kind of the way it works in terms of working through some of the, the brain type things that we treat. And so in that case, it should certainly be researched. Mm-hmm. And the biggest difference with the ivermectin thing is that the science didn't make any sense. Right. Ivermectin wouldn't treat COVID in any world or fashion, right? And so- People were calling for more research on it. And you're like, it's a waste of time. Yeah. There's a lot of other things we should be doing to research to try to help people with that condition. And so I, I just emphasize that to basically say, like, I think the research here is excellent. And yes. they should be doing as much of this as possible to try to get more information. And if there's a possibility that we could treat people better, we should always be doing it. To me, it seems like at least initially, this is a type of treatment that's going to be have to be done in a controlled setting. Mm-hmm. Anybody who has talked about a really bad trip before understands that being in a not controlled setting is not a good place for it. Right. And especially since this is going to be likely prescribed to people who have pretty significant diagnoses, right? This isn't going to be the first line treatment for anything. This is going to be people who have been struggling for a long time. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they should be doing this unsupervised. Yeah. And so therefore, I think a supervised use of psilocybin in a way that also allows them to then associate it with another treatment in terms of therapy or whatnot is a really, really interesting concept. So thanks for the story. I found that really, really interesting. And I'm looking forward to Maybe we'll have an episode like a year from now and we'll be talking about it differently. Totally. All right. You want to have a little dessert? Yeah. Okay. Um, Julie, when was your last physical? I just signed up for one uh, next month. It was a year ago. Okay. Yeah. And then, so do you know if they checked your iron level at that physical? Ooh, I don't think so. Yeah. So historically, it's not checked. No. Iron levels are not 
checked. We usually check hemoglobins, and if they're low, then we check iron, iron. studies. Yeah, so right. But there was an article in the New York Times on October 17th by Alicia Haradasani Gupta mm -hmm. that more or less put out there that roughly 35% of women of reproductive age in the U.S. are iron deficient by current standards. Mm. And so the question is, is, should we be looking for iron deficiency? Because iron is crucial for hemoglobin. And if we are yeah. more than a third of women of reproductive age are deficient in it, that's probably not a good thing. No. You know what? Yes. And you know what's interesting that you bring this up, and I don't know if I told you about this, but literally just this year, the university that I take care of, they are screening just their cross-country and track athletes for this specifically. And it was brought up actually by the registered dietitian who and the athletic trainers. And they were like, hey, can we start this screening protocol? But so weird that, yeah, that this came up. Yeah, it's interesting. So people can be symptomatic of iron deficiency without anemia. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of times we associate the anemia, meaning low hemoglobin, yeah. as being the issue. But you can have iron deficiency like, and theoretically have normal hemoglobin and therefore still have symptoms. But the problem is, is these symptoms are relatively nonspecific. There's very few times where people walk in, list their symptoms, and the first thing you think of is iron deficiency. Sure. They're like shortness of breath, brain fog, fatigue, mm -hmm. lightheadedness, sensitivity to cold and heart palpitations. It's parenting. Is basically what the <laughs> symptoms that you that you get, um, but I mean, like you hear those symptoms and you just don't think iron deficiency. But um, the normal uh, iron level is fifteen micrograms per liter, mm -hmm. and the normal hemoglobin is twelve grams per deciliter. Um, but there's some movement in the um, medical scientific community mm -hmm. that non-pregnant menstruating women should have higher levels, okay, because of the fact that they are menstruating. And therefore, the level should be actually 30 to 50 micrograms should be normal. Mm. And that 13 grams for hemoglobin should be normal. And if you put in those new definitions, up to 70% of women could be theoretically iron deficient based on those standards. Interesting. Which is just kind of interesting, right? So do you know what the number one cause? I've already mentioned it. But you know the number one cause of iron deficiency in this group is? Menses. Yeah, Periods. it's normal menstrual bleeding. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And and again, it doesn't even have to be heavy. No. I mean, I think heavy is the most common cause, um, but it doesn't have to be heavy. Yeah, kind of like you were talking about before, um, earlier this week, with respect to the uh, sickle cell folks, is that, you know, we're constantly producing different types of blood cells. And so, you know, you have to keep up with utilization. And if you're losing a whole bunch, you have to keep making more and more and more. Um, to keep up with that or else you are going to have a shortage. Um, that's just that's just supply and demand, baby. Look, now we're a, we're a business podcast. Look at that. Yeah, we're getting MBAs and menstrual bleeding. <laughs> As I'm holding on to my son saying that. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's That'll be the real right there. Odd visual. <laughs> um, so I guess the, the, the reason I put this in the dessert episode was basically like, should women of reproductive age, people non-pregnant and menstruating, frankly, if you're pregnant too, should we be checking your iron levels on a regular basis? Yeah. I thought from through this that my answer to that would be yes. In addition to like a blood count, I think every woman should be having an iron level checked as well because if they're deficient, then we should be replacing it. Okay, interesting. So this dessert... And it's something that we can easily treat, right? Iron deficiency sure. is... I mean, just Give taking iron, iron supplements is not a big... Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. So this dessert was like a like a blood pudding... <laughs> I mean, depends on what you want to get your iron in, a steak for dessert. There you go. That's great. <laughs> but as a, as, as a woman who in this category, what is that? Does, do you have any reactions to that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just funny that it dovetails in with what we're 
currently implementing as screening protocols for our um it, it's really so far i think we're only doing it for track and cross country i think uh, women athletes at my university um so yeah. far we've caught a fair amount of people that uh not only are well they're doing it for men and women to, to you know to be egalitarian um but because those those folks were considered the highest risk and the registered dietitian that we work with who's awesome cited a whole bunch of different studies that said what's the point here's the point of doing this you know and, and and we have caught quite a few people that have frank iron deficiency anemia and then also people that were in this low iron state but non-anemic state and um, we have protocols in place to replete their iron to different degrees um, like sometimes i have to step in and give them sort of a prescription and then otherwise they're referred back to our dietitian to talk about how to get iron in their diets in different supplementary ways and so i don't know i think it's really cool and i think um it's something that's simple enough and if you can improve people's quality of life and do some very relatively inexpensive screening not a bad idea you have your upcoming physical are you going to make sure they check your iron um i'm i'm gonna let my pcp decide uh what's what's helpful for me (laughs) yeah my my take home is i think for the athletes i take care of where we draw blood i'm going to be screening it on um non-pregnant menstruating women and for my own family members, I'm going to recommend people in that age group getting at least an iron once, like, every other year. Sure. Um, just to make sure that it's not low. That's the take home for me. I love it. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for taking a little trip with your doctor friends this week. We love you. Goodbye. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.